welcome to Element Church. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here. And I want to welcome you not only to church, but to week two of our brand new series uh, called Broken Saviors, in which we are taking a journey through the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Now, this morning, if you would like to follow along, some of the scripture passages that we're going to read through and talk about are actually going to be on the screen for you, but not all of them. Here in just a minute, I'm actually going to read a pretty large section from the beginning of the book of Judges, um, something that we read last week, but if you weren't here last week, this will serve as a great introduction to what's taking place in Judges. And so that big block of text that I'm about to read will actually not be on the screen. And so to follow along, it'll be easier if you have your Bible. So if you brought one, you're welcome to open it up. Or if you have a phone or tablet, if you scan this QR code. It will open up our event in the Bible app. Um, and if you don't have the Bible app, when you scan this QR code, it'll just open it up in a web browser. So if you don't have the app, you can follow along with us. Um, some of the links that Monica just talked about to our connection card, to our weekly parent connection newsletter, all those links are in there as well. And so you can access all of those things there. And so last week we began a study through the book of Judges. And I laid out how the book of Judges fits within the broader context and story of the Old Testament. Now, um, what we did is we started with the first book in the Old Testament. And we walked all the way through till we got to the seventh book, Judges, which is where we're studying right now. And laid out the context of what took place and how we got from the beginning to Judges. Now, we're not going to do that again this morning. If you weren't here last week, and it would be helpful for you to have more context around Judges and how we get to this place in history, um, you can go to our website and um, both the audio and video uh, versions of our message last week are available there, and you can watch that and catch up there. But let me give you some just brief, brief history snapshots of what's taken place that has led us to Judges. So the people of Israel, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt, and God set them free. That's the big part of Exodus, the Exodus out of Egypt, and God takes them on a journey into a promised land, that a land that he had promised to give to this group of people um, hundreds of years before uh, this moment. And so they come up to the land, and though a lot of things happen in between there, eventually um, God leads his people into this brand new land, what we call the promised land. And up until that point, a man named Moses had been their leader, and then God appoints a new leader, Joshua, after Moses dies, to lead the people as they take possession of this new land. And God gives his people instructions that when they move into this new land, that they need to get rid of all the people that currently live there. And it's for two reasons, as we talked about last week. Number one is because God is working to to protect the spiritual lives of his people. Because he knows that if they go and they move in next door to all these other communities, uh, that they're going to be tempted to live like their neighbors, to begin worshiping like their neighbors. And God says, I want you to stay focused on me. So I don't want you just living with these other people. Um, you're going to expel them out of the land so that you can only focus on me and not be tempted by all of these other religious and cultural practices of other nations. 
And the other reason God told them to do this was because this was one way in which God could pass his judgment on the wickedness and the evil deeds of some of these other nations. As we looked, about, uh, looked at last week, these other nations even recognized in the moment that God was bringing about his judgment on their own evil deeds. And so even they knew what was ha- why uh, these things were happening to them. And so in the book of Judges, we get this story of what happens when the people actually move into the promised land. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to read out of um, part of chapter 2 in Judges. And this is sort of the introduction that will set the stage for the entire book. Um, It's really going to introduce for us a cycle that is going to be on repeat over and over and over as we go through this book. And so you can follow along with me. I'm going to read from Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 21. And so you can follow along in your Bible or the Bible app um, as I read. And it says this. So we're going to back up in history a little bit as a part of this introduction. So even though at the time of Judges, Joshua, the guy who was their leader, has already died. We're going to back up and start the story when Joshua is still alive. And so in verse 6, it says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So that was a part of what God had designed to happen. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So far, so good. Seems like things are going according to plan. Well, those are the only three verses in the entire book where that happens. So let's continue. Verse 9, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. So Joshua, their leader, has now died. He's been buried. Verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That's just a nice way of saying they died also. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashereth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. 
So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. And so that was a summary, an overview of not only how we get to the point uh, where Israel is, but this is a picture of a cycle that is going to go on repeatedly throughout the book. Now, we read a lot of verses there, and hopefully that made sense and sort of set the scene for you. But there's a few verses that I want to focus in on just a little bit before we continue and move on. And the first one comes out of verse 11 that we just read. And it said this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. This sentence is key. As a matter of fact, this sentence will be repeated nearly 10 times over the course of this book. Almost every time that we repeat and restart the cycle, and I'll show you a picture of this cycle in just a minute, we start the new cycle with this exact phrase. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this promised land... um, We often call it Canaan. And the people who lived there were Canaanites. And Baal is a Canaanite word that means Lord. And so what we see is that as the people, instead of obeying God and getting rid of these people, instead they decided just to cozy on up and decide to do life with them. And what happened is exactly what God promised that they would be tempted to start worshiping other gods, that they would be tempted to start living lives that mirrored those of the pagan nations around them. And so the Israelites began to do what was evil in God's sight and serving other lords. They abandoned the Lord in order to serve many lords, both Many as in multiple and many as in little. They abandoned the Lord to serve many lords. I want to look at verse 14. We read this just a minute ago as well. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Because they had done exactly what he had told them not to do. Because what he told them would happen if they disobeyed is exactly what happened So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Now don't miss the irony here. These enemies are the very people whose gods Israel has chosen to serve. If there was ever a historical picture of the truth that idolatry leads to slavery, this is it. Now, here's what's interesting. The Israelites did not stop worshiping the Lord. And we know that because as we continue to read the story, we will realize that they continued some of the old practices of worshiping the Lord in a sort of corrupted and convoluted way. But they didn't ever completely abandon the Lord. They also didn't completely forget about some of the things that God had done for them. But what they did is 
they took their worship of God and then started adding to it the worship and service to other idols. They adopted the pagan worldview of the time around them that allowed for many different gods. That you could sort of create your own combination of individuals, gods that you wanted to honor and serve. And so what Israel did is they never fully stopped worshiping the Lord. They just started worshiping other things as well. And this is the greatest danger for you and I today. The greatest danger for you and I today, for most of us sitting in this room, the greatest danger is not that we would become atheists. The greatest danger for you and I today is that we would ask God to coexist with other idols in our lives. The Israelites didn't worship these idols because they were impressed by the fancy little carvings that may have represented them. The Israelites didn't worship these other gods because they were so enthralled and amazed by the the enormous temples that these other cities and nations had devoted to their gods. The Israelites worshipped these other idols because they made promises to them. These idols and these other gods promised things like wealth and health prosperity, fertility, success in business and in farming. They promise to bring rain on the crops. They promise to fight away disease and drought. Sometimes we look back at these old stories Just to put it in perspective, the time of the judges happens more than 3,000 years before today. So this is more than 1,000 years even before Jesus would show up on the scene. Sometimes we look back at history and find other people strange and odd because they do things that are so unusual and foreign to us. But the reality is they're humans just like we are. And we're tempted to do the exact same thing. My guess is no one in here is actually tempted to worship an idol because you find the little figurines cute and impressive. My guess is no one in here is drawn in to worship another god because you're impressed by any physical representation of them or a temple devoted to them. We get tempted by idols... And to worship false gods because of what they promise to us. And the promises that we chase after are not much different than them. Things like fame, fortune, a stress-free life, ease of life, fulfillment and happiness, figurines that we may bow down to today just look different we don't put them on our mantle we put them in our wallet we don't inscribe them on stone tablets we inscribe them in our calendars we're tempted 
not to become atheists, but to ask our God to coexist with other idols, other things that we would like to devote our lives to and to serve. And we do it because they make promises to us to deliver things to us. But the reality is that while idols promise everything, as everyone in here who has lived any amount of life knows, they promise everything and they deliver nothing. Because there's never a finish line. Because no matter how much you attain, it's never enough. There's always more to be had. And the greatest problem with idols is that they never offer grace or forgiveness. Nothing that we've ever pursued in our life has ever been able to take away guilt or shame. They don't give grace and they don't give forgiveness. And so yes, this story is 3,000 years old, but it's a lot closer to home than most of us realize. And so as a part of this introduction and this long section that we read, it introduced us to a cycle, a cycle that's going to be on repeat throughout this book. The names and the faces and the circumstances will change, but the cycle will stay the same. And it will begin with the people rebelling. They will disregard the Lord. They will not follow his commandments. And they will abandon the covenant relationship that they had with God. God will get angry as a part of his judgment and punishment and disciplining of his people. He will allow their enemies to come in and oppress them. And the people will cry out. They'll recognize that they got what they thought they wanted and then it turned out they didn't want it anymore. So they'll ask God for help. So God will send salvation through a judge. That's why we call the book Judges. This judge will lead the people. Oftentimes will fight against the enemy, bring relief from oppression, and sometimes even a spiritual renewal and revival will take place. And there will be a period of peace and then the judge dies, and we start the process over again. And so what I want to do is we're actually going to turn to chapter 3 now. There are three judges, and their stories are, three of the judges' stories are told in chapter 3. There's a total of 12 judges in this book. Um, we're going to look at some in more details, and others we're not going to spend too much time on, because we need to finish this series in the book of Judges before we get to Easter. So... Um, t time constraints will make us go a little faster on some sections. So we're going to look at the first judge today. Next week, we're going to look at a little bit of the second judge. We're going to just cover his story quickly, and we're going to move on into the third judge. But if you'll look with me, we're going to turn to Judges chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7, because verses 1 through 6 is sort of another setup. Um, we've exited the We've left the introduction to the book. We get a little set up, um, which we've really already covered, and then we'll start in verse 7. 
And so we're going to go through verses 7 through 11, and I'll stop and break them up occasionally. So let's just start with verse 7. And what you'll notice is, as I told you, this phrase is going to appear again that marks the entire book and sort of serves as an opening to every new cycle. Verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. So the cycle has begun. Verse 8 and 9. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And so we progress through this cycle that because of their rebellion, their disobedience, and their idolatry, God is no longer going to hold back their enemies. He's going to allow their enemies to come and attack them and oppress them. And then we see this. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And at least in this first cycle, they have the right response. What's wrapped up into this phrase is the idea that they recognize their sin. They recognize that it is their fault. They cry out to the only God who can deliver them. Because as anyone who is chased after other idols of life realize that when things get bad, those idols can do nothing for you. And so they have, although they have spent years chasing after other idols who made promises to them, when they really need help, when they really need salvation, they turn their attention to the only God who can actually bring it. And so God does send up a deliverer for them. Othniel, our first judge. And it says this in verse 10, The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Cushan Rishathame. And so here, the judge is successful. The judge comes to lead and to rule the people, both in battle and within their land. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and God was with him. And so in summary, here's what we see. God sends trouble, God sends leadership, and then God sends the Spirit to do what only God can do. Now this is a pretty short cycle. It doesn't take up very many verses. And here's how this cycle ends which I think is such a good picture of how all the cycles end. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And verse 11 points us to the real problem. The real problem with any human leader who leads God's church or his people is that no matter how spirit-empowered they are, 
no matter how much God uses them, at some point they die. Or even if physically they may not die yet, at every point, at some point, for every leader, their time comes to an end. And then we see the cycle repeat. And what we're left with is this glaringly obvious problem. And almost an internal question of where the solution will come from. The problem is, every time God's anointed leader leaves, dies, the problems start again. And there's this recognition that what God's people really need is a leader who can't be stopped by death. What we really need is someone who can show up on the scene to bring about salvation, but a leader who, when he brings that salvation, death can't stop him. That's the kind of leader, that's the kind of savior we need. And any savior, any leader who can't overcome death in the end is just a broken savior. No matter how good or how spirit empowered they are, it won't last. Now here's how I want to close this morning. I want to close by actually going backwards a little bit. As we began our opening Earlier, we read from chapter 2, verses 6 through 21. I want to read for you, it won't be on the screen, but I want to read for you um, verses 10 through 11. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. So the generation who first entered the land and got to see God's faithful promises come to fruition, those who had worshipped and honored the Lord. And then it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. To say that this new generation did not know the Lord or what he had done, it doesn't mean that they actually didn't know about the exodus from Egypt, how God led his people free. It's not to say that they actually didn't know about when God parted the Red Sea so his people could cross through on dry ground. It's not that they didn't actually know about crossing the Jordan River or seeing the walls of Jericho fall down. Now, how do we know that? Because later on in this story, we'll see them talk about some of those events. So they actually knew that those events had happened. Rather, by the fact that they didn't know means that God himself and his mighty acts, which serve as evidence of his power and love and faithfulness and trustworthiness and supremacy and glory, those things were no longer precious or central to them. We know this because we get references to some of these events later. And we also know that they 
didn't completely forget about Yahweh or the Lord because their worship never fully stopped. It just started morphing into convoluted, misguided ways of worship as they begin adopting additional pagan and idolatrous practices. They knew God and his deeds. They just didn't know. They hadn't learned to revere and rejoice in what God had done. They had forgotten the gospel. That they had been slaved out, they had been saved out of slavery and brought into a new life and existence by the gracious, mighty acts of God. They had forgotten not all the details, but the weight and meaning of these events. They knew about God and his activities. They just didn't know him personally and relationally. This is true of this idea of remembering and forgetting in all, all the scriptures. In Psalm 95, the people of Israel, excuse me, Psalm 25, the people of Israel, they ask God to, quote, remember your great mercy and love. In Isaiah 64, they ask God to, quote, not remember our sins. Now, they didn't believe that God could actually forget what he was like or what they had done. They were asking God to act according to what they already know to be true of his character. So to say that Israel forgot God is to say that they were no longer controlled by what they knew. Though they knew who God was and what he wanted, those things were not real to them. This is a spiritual problem we have today too. What we know with our heads is not always real to us in our hearts and our whole beings. We may acknowledge intellectually that something is true, but in our hearts it does not grab us and penetrate us or control us. We see this in the New Testament as well. In Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, in the second letter that he writes that we have in the New Testament, he's urging us to grow in our character. But what if we don't grow, grow in our character? What if, we're not have, what if we're not making good progress growing in our character? You know, Peter doesn't say, oh, your problem is that you're not trying enough. You're not trying hard enough. Here's what Peter does say in 2 Peter 1.9. For whoever lacks these qualities where we're failing to grow in our character is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter says the problem that we're suffering from, the reason we're not making the progress we want to, the reason we look at our lives today and think why aren't we farther ahead why do we still struggle with the same sins? Why are the same idols in our lives still a temptation for us? It's not because we're not trying hard enough. It's because we've forgotten. So what does Peter want to do as the pastor of this church that he's writing to? What is, how does he want to help them? Verses 12 and 13. 
Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter is like, listen, the greatest thing I can do for for you is to remind you. To remind you of who God is and the great things that he has done. Because the path to destruction begins by forgetting. Not that we would forget the details, but that those details would no longer impact our hearts. That we could know something intellectually and it not ever make a difference in our hearts or our lives. The book of Judges is not just a warning about what happens when we pursue idolatry, which it certainly is. It's also a warning about the dangers of forgetting, of failing to remember. When you walked in this morning, you were handed one of these. For many of you, this will be familiar. For some, this may be unusual. But in it, at the top is a a piece of bread, and in the bottom is some grape juice. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have celebrated something called the Lord's Supper, in which we remember what Jesus has done for us. Here's what Jesus said on the night before he was betrayed and crucified. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, his disciples who were sitting with them, and saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was saying, hey, this bread that is broken for you is representing my body, which is about to be broken for you on the cross. This cup represents the blood that I'm going to pour out for you on the cross. I will be the Savior that no human leader could ever be for you. Because rather than just punishing you for your sins, I will be punished for your sins. I will take your punishment upon myself on the cross. And I'll be the kind of Savior that no other Savior has ever been because death won't stop me. I will die for you. But to show you I'm the kind of Savior you need who's genuinely worthy of your adoration and your worship, the grave won't hold me down. I will defeat death. I will defeat sin. So as Christians, this is one of the ways in which we don't forget. That we remember. And may this remembering never be intellectual only. May this remembering impact our hearts in the way we live. So we're going to close this morning. If you didn't receive one of these, there are more of them back on the coffee table. And so at any time, you can go back and grab one. And rather than us taking this together all at the same time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and I'm going to pray for you. And then I'm going to give you some time to pray. 
And during this final song, whenever you're ready, I want you to take the bread and the cup. If you're sitting near someone uh, that you know and you would be comfortable, I would love to encourage you to pray with whoever you're sitting close to, maybe before you do that. Maybe just the idea of praying is intimidating to you, and maybe it could be a one-sentence prayer. Thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. Let me never forget. And during this final song, we're going to give you the opportunity to take the bread and the cup as a way to remember. Earlier, we sang about God's faithfulness. We sang these words, great is your faithfulness. We sang that God has never failed us. And then we said, I will never forget. May we never forget about God's faithfulness, that he has never failed us. And next we're singing a song called Lead Me to the Cross, the place where we go to remember. And here's how verse one of this song starts. Savior, I come, quiet my soul, remember. Redemption's hill, where your blood was spilled for my ransom. Lead me to the cross. We come to Jesus, we come to the cross to remember God's goodness, his faithfulness. We remember who he is and what he has done. Lord, thank you for the moment that we have had to come in your presence and be confronted by your love and your truth and your righteousness. We recognize that because of your justice and your righteousness, rebellion and sin and idolatry must be punished, it must be paid for. And Jesus, we worship you in thanksgiving because you took our punishment for us. Because of our sin and our failure and our idolatry, you died for us. And we give you our worship because you are a savior like none other because death could not stop you. The grave could not hold you. Jesus, let us never forget. Let us remember who you are and what you have done. Let it impact who we are and how we live.